there are some folks who believe that it would never be possible to upload an individual human's identity into a computer substrate of some other kind to represent a person in a computer world. Uh, and there's other folks that believe that John Searle being among the most famous, that consciousness itself is a purely biological process and that it itself could likely never be replicated outside of a biology. In other words, being uh, embedded in computer chips or, or elsewhere in some other substrate. Um, Dr. Keith Wiley believes that both are fully possible and that we just haven't gotten there yet. Uh, Keith Wiley is a PhD in computer science and he's also the author of a book called A Taxonomy and Metaphysics of Mind Uploading. Today he speaks with us about why he believes that uploading an individual human's identity into a computer substrate may be possible in the coming decades. We don't talk about how many decades ahead, but though it may be possible in the coming decades. And what very light and low levels of progress in that direction are we making today? Everything from uh, neuromorphic computing uh, to replicating the connectome and interconnectedness of neurons of very small creatures like worms, um, and how these might be chipping away at getting us to the point where we could replicate consciousness and replicate an individual's identity and their consciousness, uh, for lack of better terms, in a computer substrate. So, very interesting conversation. Without further ado, we'll get into this episode of the Tech Emergence Podcast with Dr. Keith Wiley. So, Keith, before we talk a little bit about where the research has taken us and where it might take us, um, this entire interview is going to hone in on the topic of, of potentially housing minds in substrates outside of the brain, the, the, the wetware that we're all familiar with upstairs inside of our skull. I know that there's a lot of very intelligent researchers and scientists um, who are rather pessimistic about us maybe ever being able to house something like uh, genuine consciousness, whatever that may be, we could argue about that all day, um, in, in a substrate outside of a brain, outside of a living substrate, a biological substrate. And then there's other folks that, that really believe that in time we will. I know that you're in the latter camp. Why is that so? Well, uh, uh, ultimately, people have been trying to figure this out for a while. Um, from a research point of view, we haven't figured it out solidly yet, but we're still um, you know, figuring out how the brain works. But from a philosophical point of view, uh, the, main, the main lines of arguments have been advanced uh, to some extent. So, um, you know, there are people like John Searle who uh, often argue for, uh, for what might be a, a sort of a biological theory of consciousness. Yep. That, um, this notion that consciousness is a, a sort of a biological process and, and that we can't meaningfully conceive of it outside of a biological system. Um, there are people like uh, Penrose and Hameroff who yep. uh, may or may not be against artificial consciousness, but they do believe that it requires um, a, a quantum phenomenon uh, in order to to produce it. So it yep. would require at the least some sort of quantum technology, if at all. Um, so there's two there's two questions that often come up, and, and I think people sometimes conflate them. One is, can consciousness, uh, you know, sort of occur or arise from non-biological systems, like you know, computers of some sort? And then a very different question is, can an individual person's uh, uh, personal, what's often called personal identity, although sometimes people use the word consciousness uh, to describe this, and it's, it's, it's a bad choice of words. Um, so, you know, there's a question of whether a person's personal identity uh, you know, from their biological brain can, in some sense, be 
reassociated with some other system, you know, yeah. some, a, a computer where it might be uploaded to. And those are separate questions. Maybe we can conceive that consciousness really can occur in computers. We can make artificial intelligence that is genuinely conscious, and yet we still don't, uh, you know, choose to the position that anyone's person, any one person's personality could ever. Uh, I, I don't like to use the word move and transfer because that has a, a sort of a spatial aspect to it that I don't approve of. But yeah. you know, you might believe that computers can be conscious, but you can't move move identity around from one system to another. So there's all sorts of options, um, and there are definitely uh, you know professional, well-respected scientists who who just don't um, have the stance that uh, either uh, either one of those combinations. Um, you know, I think Searle might not believe that we can get consciousness from a non-biological system at all. Yep. Um, or at the very least, he certainly doesn't believe we can get it from an algorithmic, uh, you know, sort of a, a von Neumann-like computer. It would take a completely different kind of system. Um, now, with respect to, uh, you know, so first of all, you have to sort of buy one as the prerequisite to the other. You have to assume that we really can replicate consciousness in a computer if you're going to make the leap to the other step that yep. a person's personal identity could be transferred, you know, that sort of requires that consciousness be, uh, instantiable in a computer in the first yep. place. So, um, I'm on board with both of those. Um, a lot of people are, uh, as to why I think consciousness at all can, you know, can work in systems that are not like, uh, brains. It's that, uh, we don't really know what consciousness is. People like Chalmers and Dennett, uh, have written at length about what consciousness is, um, or at least what the interesting questions are. Um, one of the prevailing theories, definitely not the only theory and people who don't like this theory don't like hearing it, uh, over and over and over again, but definitely one of the prevailing theories is that consciousness, uh, for reasons we don't yet understand, um, arises from, emerges from. Um, very complex networks of, of uh, sort of information information passing networks, and uh, we don't know why. I mean, you know, we have to openly admit that even if we believe that's the case, we don't currently know how it works. Yep, yep. But even if we don't know how it works, yet there is nevertheless a prevailing philosophical stance that that's where it comes from. Consciousness happens when you get a really massive network configured in the right way. We can imagine all sorts of crazy networks that would have the wrong properties, but networks that have the properties that the brain has, for whatever reason, can be conscious. And, and is this, just to, to kind of keep the audience on pace here, um, is, is this somewhat similar to the sort of Kurzweilian take on this one, you know, that, that consciousness... At a certain degree of complexity of this, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of neural neural net and, and some some semblance of those intersections at, at whatever scale, at some point consciousness kind of arises, so to speak, at a certain degree of, of complexity. I, I, from what I gather, that's Kurzweil's stance. Uh, I, I think I'm, that's the that is the general position. And, okay. the, and the point I want to emphasize is, uh, you know, what's what's going on these days is. Uh, you know, the beginning of a tremendous, um, you know, sort of scientific and engineering project that will go on for a long time. So the things that have been done, the progress that has been made are just the bare initial stepping stones. Um, first of all, um, on the topic of whether or not consciousness can be sort of, you know, uh, produced by artificial systems or whether it can be, you know, whether personal identity can be uh, you know, interpreted to have uploaded into a new system. Um, I would say that in terms of solid progress, it's, it's 
it's not, you know, from a proof point of view, no one's, you know, proven anything new in the last 10 years. It's, uh, it's a tremendous philosophical, uh, both disagreement and ongoing discussion as, you know, sort of what kinds of, uh, what kinds of scenarios and procedures would allow us to philosophically interpret something as a successful mind upload? You know, there's, there is no lab experiment that has helped us, uh, you know, settle that discussion yet. Got it. There have been um, some lab work, you know, away from the, the philosophy of personal identity and away from um, real, the sort of the intangible consciousness, but there's ongoing work just on, uh, taking brain function and making sense out of it, understanding it in greater detail, just sort of advancing our science and understanding of brains. And also um, in the sort of the engineered attempt to replicate these systems in artificial ways. Um, so for a, uh, just for a quick example, um, the, the Open Worm project is a, a project that takes the ongoing research on the C. elegans nematode um, whose connectome, the, the synapse connecting network of the neurons of this worm, the synapse connecting network connectome uh, was decoded um, a few decades ago, in fact. Goodness. And um, there has been progress to actually now create computer models of a C. elegans in a software system and even to then create a physical model. I think they used a Lego robot as the, uh, <laughs> as the platform to create, you know, um, sort of a ostensibly what you would call an uploaded version of a C. elegans worm. This yep. worm's a millimeter long, incidentally. Um, so, you know, that, you know, the point I made earlier is, well, one could philosophically ask, have we uploaded a worm? You know, and that's, it, it's, a, it's a question that doesn't mean anything in our current neuroscience it, because we don't have any philosophical way to answer the question. Yeah, it's, it's tough, um, yeah. But from a technical point of view, the point is that we're making strides in the necessary uh, neuroscanning techniques, the necessary techniques of growing neurons on chips, the necessary techniques of uh, modeling and replicating um, neural functionality, and then uh, you know, you're sort of being able to study these systems. That's where all the, the great work is being done. Um, you know, the other thing, another thing we've been, we've been making advances in is basically coming up with new ways of computing. Um, so one field that's coming is called neuromorphic chips, which are um, a new kind of computer chip that works in a way that's a little bit more similar to the way neurons work than the way classical computer chips have worked. Um, and, you know, I, neuromorphic chips are not neurons, but they're a step in the direction of creating computing systems that are, uh, you know, physically and functionally more brain-like and less desktop computer-like. And how do you mean that, Keith? In other words, you know, neuromorphic, I, I've certainly heard the term, um, you know, pistol to temple. I couldn't rattle off a great definition for you. What 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 defines neuromorphic as, as a computer chip, and, and what, you know, where are its similarities to the neuron? Well, um, I'm not an expert in neuromorphic chips. Um, I follow them a little bit. Um so it's worth it's worth a Google for the people tuned in. Either way, yeah, not a big deal. Yep. Yeah, you know, um, they basically consist of creating a large number of uh, very similar chips and then letting them. Um, uh, I believe it basically comes down to letting them uh, signal pass in sort of neuron and synaptic sort of ways. But um, I actually haven't studied exactly how they're programmed or how they're utilized. Got it. I, I remember hearing some buzz about it, but it's. It's worth a it's worth a Google. It sounds like neuromorphic chips. So so again, another sort of hardware 
constituent of us maybe moving closer, at least. At least yeah, moving I mean, closer you know, the faster. other the other way in which we're making our computers more brain-like is just massive parallelization. You know, parallelization um, used to be uh, sort of the domain of Cray supercomputers. And uh, with the rise of cloud computing, we now do our parallel computing in a different way. Instead of buying supercomputers, we just create um, thousands upon thousands of essentially normal desktop computers and hook them up into a network. Yep. Um, you know, another field of parallel computing that is uh, sort of taken off in the last 10 or 20 years is um, general purpose graphic processing units, GPGPU, where you take these vector processors that are usually used for uh, essentially running the graphics in video games and generalize their processing to perform arbitrary functions, but in massive parallels. So in your computer, you may have... Um, these days you actually have a little bit of parallel computing in your computer because it probably has two, four, eight cores, whereas, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago you only had one yep. core. But we're still only sort of in the 8 or 16 range in the main CPU of your computer. But the vector processing uh, unit in, in your graphics chip has hundreds if not thousands of parallel threads of computation at your disposal. Um, so that's just another way in which we're going massively parallel. Um, you know, the big projects that we hear about, um, Blue Brain and uh, the, what's it called? Um, yeah, the, the Obama Brain Initiative there. Yes, there's one big one in Europe and one big one in the U.S. And, um, uh, you know, Japan and China tend to have something going on, although I don't remember the names of those projects right now. You know, the, the that's another place that we're making massive progress in using uh, tremendously parallel systems um, thousands and thousands of, neuro of uh, processors, and we're uh, we're not just using them for weather simulations, which is what we used to use them for. We're not just using them to simulate uh, nuclear explosions, which is what we used to use them for. Um, a huge area of application now, as per the name of these projects, is we're actually using them to model brains, and um, you know that's that's actually a new thing. We we weren't we didn't have the uh, you know the economic or or the the political incentive to try to use these things for brain mapping in the past. It was, it was too important to use them to figure out the equations of what was going on inside a nuclear bomb. That was where the money came from, so that's yep. what we used the computers no, that's, for. That's it, yes, yeah, uh, You know, people want to use these things to study brains now, and, uh, you know, again, even in 2015, we're at the beginning, but it's amazing to sort of think about where that kind of research will go. So, okay, so, and, and I think a lot of folks have heard of the the blue brain and, and they've heard of kind of Obama's brain initiative. Um, it, in terms of you know tangible progress or at least uh, increased capacity, um, it sounds like just the application of parallel computing in a way that's aiming to replicate you know a neuron or, or a series of neurons or whatever the case may be. That it sounds like from your perspective that is kind of new and 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 potentially worthwhile. Yeah, well, I've always held that. Uh you know, massively parallel computing is the way to go. You, I think that to make uh, computers intelligent, you you, you kind of got to do it the way brains do it. Um, <laughs> you kind of got to. You kind of got to. You know, it is, from a, from a theoretical point of view, one could make the argument that serial processing can emulate parallel processing. In theory, we should be able to make, you know, a single incredibly fast computer behave like a brain. But... Um, it's a needlessly difficult way to do it. It's, it's a lot easier to just take billions of simpler processors and network them up. One reason that that's simpler is um, 
we have a system we can study. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we might as well work with what we got. Well, you know, what what is what is the uh, the, the exemplar of intelligence and, and consciousness? You know, in a, in a general sense that we know of, I I guess I guess there's only one example, and I think that's part of the reason why maybe it's so darn hard to wrap our own heads around what's in our own heads. Uh, and and you know, you had you, you had a lot of trepidation about using certain terms, you know, such as you know, moving, which implied spatial things there, and we were, we were kind of antsy around words like consciousness, because there's just so many connotations, and we're talking about these abstractions that have to do with, you, you know, they have to do with the thinking that's required to articulate those abstractions, for crying out loud, and, and uh, by golly, that's complicated. But, but yeah, we might as well study uh, the best example we got, which for right now uh, is in skulls. So, um, Keith, lastly here, before we part, um, I know some folks are uh, you know, it sounds as though you're you're optimistic about this being possible. Some folks are optimistic about this being possible within a, a reasonably foreseeable fewish decades. Some people are optimistic about this being possible in a reasonably feasible few centuries. Um, in, in terms of your own thoughts around sort of where we might be in the next 10 or 20 years with respect to uh, replicating minds in other substrates, um, what are some of your thoughts? Good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. Where do you honestly feel like maybe we'll end up and, and what kind of progress is reasonable in the, in the decades ahead? Uh, well, in the next 10 to 20 years, I think it'll be um, mostly advances in artificial intelligence, not in, not in mind uploading. Um, I think that we're probably going to see pretty impressive advances in artificial intelligence. Um, uh, as for mind uploading, I think that's going to take a while. Some people think it'll be possible by the middle of the century. Um, I'm not really one of them. Um, it's hard for me to predict what we'll be doing a hundred years from now. Yeah, of uh, you know, by some by some estimates, a hundred years is a very short window, and by some other estimates, it's very long. You know, it's it feels short to be making prognostications about mind uploading, but it feels very long in that I'm I'm wary to say what it wouldn't be possible a hundred years from yep. now. Um, so well, maybe 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 this is an adequate question, Keith. I don't want to have to have you put your finger on something that you you really don't have a swing at here. Um, you'd mentioned artificial intelligence seeing leaps and bounds there in the coming decades. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of money there. Maybe more money than in this crazy wacky neuro stuff. Um, it, do you think that advances in artificial intelligence will potentially aid in our understanding of uh, sentience, identity, etc.? And and if so, how? Uh, well, one of the big places that I think AI is going to help is that um, the more capable our AI becomes, the larger a role it's going to play in our brain mapping projects. So we have pro we have these systems. Um, you know, one of the best examples is Watson, which um, you know I, I think that things like Watson and what Watson will become in ten years and what Watson will become in twenty years will be playing a crucial research role in our ongoing brain mapping. Um, you know, because you know one of the big problems with brain mapping is just the, the data load. You know, it's it's uh, you know for humans to just make sense of it all is is an uh, ongoing challenge. The yep. the years that you spend becoming an expert in this by the, by the time anyone is old enough to be doing any of this stuff. They're thirty-five or forty. It's just, yep. it, you know, even even once you finish your PhD, you're just at the beginning of studying these fields. Um, and I think that 
incredibly capable systems, uh, you know, like Watson are uh, are going to. We're just going to be throwing hordes of data at these things and asking <laughs> Watson to find the, you know, the statistical uh, sort of uh, the statistical interpretations that tell us what is actually going on in the brain. So I think AI is going to um, advance brain research and then ultimately, you know, in that in its own way help bring about mind uploading somewhere down the road. Got it. And, and so in, in some sense, that's just being so much more capable of, of processing so much uh, more, uh, more capable of maybe uh, recognizing patterns in different ways than we can. But also, as you had mentioned, uh, it will be a better house for uh, knowledge in this domain because, you know, we can only get so far within a human lifespan and understanding all these different realms so that part of it is also maintaining kind of the intellectual capital of humanity in a machine form that will be able to marshal those great bits of knowledge forward into the world while you know people are gonna have to learn and then they're gonna have to die and and yeah. uh no, i mean it's it's an incredible thing uh you know we think about uh how brilliant you know certain researchers are but by the time they attain their brilliance uh, you know we only get uh you know a decade or two out of them um well maybe longer than that but you know people you know, you, you've got a, a career of a few decades, and then, and then you die. That's it. Yep. Um, you know, if we really try to imagine what a system like Watson would become, it's not just that it would be sort of you know incrementally better at Jeopardy, and it's not better. It's not just that it would be incrementally better at doing uh, medical diagnosis, which is one of the big places it will be applied. It's that as a system like Watson gains knowledge, it doesn't have to face the prospect of dying. Whatever, you know, whatever Watson does in 2020, that knowledge will still be accessible to it in 2080. It doesn't have to die. So it just gets smarter and smarter. And um, it just gains this ongoing knowledge of the brain as we increase our brain mapping technology. And then, you know, systems like Watson, or, you know, I, I'm just using that as a stand-in, becomes this, uh, what people sometimes refer to as an oracle. Uh, this is a term that comes from Greek mythology, but it's used in AI uh, discussions. Yep. It becomes an oracle where you can just kind of ask the system, um, you know, questions about the brain that, uh, you know, the research has done and a few human researchers have, a, uh, you know, an understanding of, but the rest of us can get at it by asking a Watson system to sort of yep. explain what's going on in the brain. And it'll it'll sort of boil down the research that it has done. This is all you know. Anyone who heard me say this right now from the Watson team would would say that he can't do that. But my point is, what would Watson be able to do in twenty fifty? Yeah, no, exactly. And and it's uh, you know maybe the folks at IBM have some idea, but at the end of the day, um, none of us can really put our finger on that. But hopefully, with continued effort, we'll be able to chip away at it and uh, and move ourselves to to the point where we'll be able to actually house mines and other substrates and then by golly keith maybe maybe then in, in kind of that golden era uh we too wouldn't have to croak just like uh just like watson so i'll i'll keep my fingers crossed i appreciate you being here and sharing your insights anybody who's interested in what keith is up to or mind uploading in general keith's book is a taxonomy and metaphysics of mind uploading again the name is keith wiley you can find that on amazon keith thanks again for being here on tech emergence thank you And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, 
and more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.